We'll, we'll spend a few minutes looking at our notes from last week on uh, men as protectors, men as protectors, and then we'll spend uh, the rest of our time, Lord willing, uh, fulfilling uh, a request to look at uh, masculinity in the mind and uh, logical fallacies and, and, of, and of that sort. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to read here. Where am I going to read from? I'm just going to read from Romans 12, a couple of verses. You can just listen along. You can turn there if you want, whatever. Enjoy your breakfast. Todd, step it up for us. Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> just a couple of verses. Verse 9, sure, yep, you can just listen. And uh, good to have you, brothers, online. Romans chapter 12. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we launch the day or crawl into the day or whatever it might be thanking you and throwing acre that you are you are sovereign that you are gracious for you if, if you were sovereign without grace we'd be in major trouble and same if you were gracious without being sovereign so, Father, no, no matter what awaits us today, what burdens we're carrying, uncertainties before us, we know that the greatest certainty is certain, and that is that your sovereignty rules over all, that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So, Father, we just pause. We affirm your lordship. We affirm your sovereignty. We affirm this this morning and today and every day that you will cause all things to work together for our good. And that we need be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make these requests known to you. And your, your peace will garrison us. Your peace, which is beyond anything we could produce or manufacture. We lay hold of those promises by the Spirit through your word this morning. Father, we also acknowledge here your word to not lag behind. Help us not lag behind in diligence. Help us to be fervent in spirit. This is a day where there is so much mediocrity and, and just shamefulness or fervency in sin. Uh, spare us of that by your spirit, Father, to be fervent in spirit, serving you, Lord. Thank you for my brothers here. So would you strengthen them? Uh, would you give us a, a zeal by the Spirit that is not from us? We, we're laughably in, incapable of producing any such thing. Would you open our heart to be encouraged, to be better men because of our fellowship this morning? Thank you for this food and for Brother Todd for zealously preparing it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okie doke, gentlemen. <clears throat> we are... 
looking, uh, continuing from last week, would someone be so kind uh, to grab the, the notes from last week? There are a couple copies. Masculinity and men as protectors. We, were, we began chit-chatting about this last week. Men as protectors. It's great. I think uh, Jake here, um, maybe one of the brothers in the back. Yeah, good stuff. Men as protectors. So we started out last week talking about firearms and guns. Why do men often have an affinity? Uh, some leftist ideology would say because, you know, colonialism, you're anarchists, you're mayhem, you're uh, violent uh, suppressors, oppressors, whatever it might be, uh, pun intended there. Um, and we would reject that. We looked at the Second Amendment and talked about how the Second Amendment was uh, is a confessional implement in our uh, kingdom of man doctrinal statement, our, our nation's constitution, because, not because, uh, we utterly reject the proposal that there's some uh, sinister, devious attempt to oppress or whatever, but because many of the men who God sovereignly had to write our constitution, it's not inerrant, it's not the Word of God. But nevertheless, many of the men were, were regenerate. And there's a drive, a masculine drive, especially if, if you're regenerate, to protect. And that is inherent, we saw in Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28, uh, among other places, to, to do what? Yeah, yeah, maybe say it another way. That's right, uh, to, to, to cultivate, right? To cultivate, uh, to subdue, subdue, dyslexic, dyslexic this morning, um, to keep, right? The, the, those commands we looked at way at the beginning of the year that is really uh, hardwired into masculinity were commanded Adam and thereby his, his uh, posterity, this is before the fall, mind us, to subdue, control. And then when you, when, when you bring Genesis 3 in, brothers, th these, these commands now are going to involve a certain restraining and um, protecting. Because Genesis 3 means we have sin enters the world. And so this command to cultivate, to subdue, exercise dominion. And, and so that's, that's a great reason why the Second Amendment is in our Constitution. Again, it's not, it's not inerrant. It's not the Word of God. But it's an outpouring. It's an observation of, huh, there's sin. Men have a natural drive if they're keeping with their masculinity to cultivate, subdue, keep. So that's going to look like restraining and protecting from evil. The self, the family, the village, and beyond. So we looked at that. And 
uh, things like like hunting and providing. That's a, that's an outflow of that. So we left off. Uh, where did we leave off? Uh, number letter D. Is that where we left off? Yeah, letter D. Spiritual protection of the local church. What page is that? Page five. Last week's notes. Page five. So we talked about men. Were, there, there, there's a there's a call here to be protectors, spiritual protectors. and physical protectors. This is masculinity. You can't have one without the other. We, we are called, part of, part of being a man is being someone who seeks to protect in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. We're talking about the spiritual realm first. Okay, so letter D, page five. I feel like you stole my notes. Spiritual protect, protection in the local church, this is where we left off, that we, we need to be protection, uh, protectors of doctrine, fighting for the faith. Jude 3, love that verse. You need to like that verse too, Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing. Notice the strong terms Jude uses. I appeal, strong, urging, command that you contend earnestly for the faith. This, is, this, is, this letter was written to not just guys, but certainly guys as protectors are to lead, that we contend earnestly for the faith, brothers. The Greek word there has the idea of exert intense effort on behalf of something and something that's worthy. So a man who will not protect doctrine, stand up and be a spiritual protector, there's a sense in which we're not we're not walking in our full, our full mandate as, as, as men and masculinity. If we will not protect in the spiritual realm, stand up for doctrinal purity. Uh, we see here 2 Timothy 1. Paul takes this, retain the standard of sound words, Timothy, which you've learned from me in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Guard. That, that's, a, that's a masculine term. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Uh, so masculinity also involves correcting and rebuking error. We know this, it's an elder qualification, right? And, and the elder qualifications, we understand this isn't like super spirituality. El the elder qualifications are just something that every guy is to sort of put in his crosshairs as something to strive for. Titus 1.9, hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he... Not she, he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine that I, I can not only explain, but exhort. What's the difference between explaining and exhorting? What's that? Yeah, application, exhorting goes, goes beyond application. Excuse me, it goes beyond mere explaining, teaching, instructing, describing to application, but also Sort of a, let's do this, a rah-rah, you know, let's storm the field. Thanks for that fist bump, Ian. That was worthy. So he is, he is to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's a call for us as men, brothers. That we can't, we're not only able to explain, 
proper biblical doctrine, but when something comes to the door that's contrary, we can refute it. We're able to see, discern, see the problems with it, dismantle it, and chuck it out of the way. That's a call for all of us guys to be able to do that. It's part of being a protector. Okay? Also, protection of the doctrinal and moral purity in the local church so that we honor Christ and his word and belief and behavior. What does this have to do with masculinity? And everything men are to lead, we're to set the pace by God's grace. So we're not only to protect doctrine in the local church, but to protect the, the, the practice, to, to make sure we have, a, a, by God's grace, a purity and behavior, guarding ourselves, guarding the church, protection from sin. We looked at last week, that means protecting from ourselves. Absolutely. Yep. We chatted a little bit about that last week. Good. Thank you, Roland. Uh, protection from isolationism and Lone Ranger Christianity. We talked about this three weeks ago. The, 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 really the, the abandonment of masculinity and this isolationist movement with pride um, and functionally how seeker-friendly churches kind of become that because you don't have an ecclesiology or a theology in that church where men hold each other accountable. It's just sort of, we have this unspoken agreement. You let me kind of, you give me space. You don't talk to me about anything. I won't talk to you about anything in your life. And we can just kind of have these superficial relationships where it's functional isolationism. But we need to protect ourselves from that. Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. 1 Corinthians 12.15, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. In other words, an illustration, a plea to go against isolationism. And a lot of us guys tend towards that to not want to plug in, to not think that we need relationships or accountability. We have to be, protect ourselves from that. The one another's are a protection, Galatians 6.3. Brothers, even if anyone is caught, the idea of caught there is can't get out, like caught in a trap and I can't free myself. In any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Right? Protecting these protect from isolationism and also protect the church from dishonoring Christ in the moral areas. Church discipline is a protection, isn't it? To, to throw off church discipline, it's not only to throw off masculinity, it's also to throw off, I'm, I'm going to throw off protecting the church, protecting the Lord's church. And we're not allowed to do that because we didn't, we didn't purchase the church. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter will be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Like, no, you don't sweep stuff under the rug. You don't pat each other on the head and say, well, let's just not say anything. There's protection there, and it's protection for the individual they could be going to hell. Protection from slander and factious people. Notice this verse at the end of Romans. This will be interesting when we get there someday, Romans 16. 
Paul is ending the letter. How would you end the book of Romans? Here's how Paul ends it. I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Huh. Interesting way to end the epistle of the gospel. Watch out for those who cause divisions, dissensions, factions. Keep away from them. Titus 3.10, this is a firm one. Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. What does that mean, reject him after a first and a second warning? This is part of being a man, a protector. We don't ignore stuff and pat, pat sin and wolves on the head. Right? We do so humbly, gently, but we don't ignore it. What does it mean? First warning, second warning, reject. Any ideas? Hint, maybe a passage we just read right before, a little bit before it. Yeah, but what it's telling you to skip a step. Which step is it telling you to skip? Yeah, step three. You go step one. You go step two, so in private, another guy or two, and then step four. Why, why, thinking about this, why would the Lord want that to happen? One, two, four, instead of one, two, three, four. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's very insightful. It's a, it's a hedge of protection because someone who is factious is usually gifted or skilled in, in not always obvious ways of bringing people to their side. Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, earlier in your notes, where he, said, where he says, watch out for wolves who try to accumulate a following after themselves. And a lot of times, men, others, will be swayed by their persuasiveness, their dynamic personality, whatever it might be about them. And so there's a great potential for wolves to take more sheep. Hence, the, Ill- the sort of odd counting one, two, four. Okay? So protection from wolves, speaking of. The watchman metaphor, Ezekiel 33 Ezekiel 33, now as for you, son of man, I've appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you'll hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he'll die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. So this is the men were to guard the city at night. They were to stay awake. You're on second watch, you're on third, you're on fourth watch, whatever it was. And what a shameful thing it would be if a man said, no, nah, I, I, I need my beauty sleep. 
you know, I, I, I have to shave my legs tonight or I have to hem my skirt so I, I can't be on fourth watch tonight or whatever. You know, that would be a forsaking of masculinity and so unloving to the women, the children, and the other men whose turn it was not. And, and Paul brings Ezekiel 33 in and Acts 20 and other places to say, we also have to apply that to the spiritual realm. Right? The physical realm matters, but the physical realm is temporal, and so the spiritual being eternal, it matters also. Guard the local church from wolves, Acts 20, 28. We just mentioned this, be on guard for yourselves. Notice, he says, guard yourself from becoming a wolf. For all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Why would Paul say in a passage to guard spiritually the church from your own self, your own sin, and others, why would he insert there the phrase, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood? Why would he, why would he put that there? There are no capricious words in Holy Scripture. Why would he say that? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, we're not just protecting something of our own, right? What, what we're protecting in the spiritual realm the church, it's bought by Christ, and he paid a heavy price for it, right? A big price. So that ups the ante a little bit, and how important it is to see ourselves for what God calls us to be and what we are, protectors. Okay, speaking of which, I know, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Notice he doesn't call them nice wolves or wolves who we just kind of need to pray for but never say anything to. Or just, just have a Bible study and kind of passively try to help them. No, they're savage wolves. I know they will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So implicitly, he's saying, make sure you don't become a wolf. And when you see other wolves, love God, have enough respect for what Christ has done to be spiritual protectors. Be on guard there. Uh, the Greek word has the idea of being in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error and to respond appropriately, to be on the lookout for. This is, this is part of what we get to do. In heaven, you won't have to do this anymore. But now we do. Uh, spiritual protection, also at work, it's your job. This isn't always possible because of your station, but where possible, we should pray that God would help us be sort of a spiritual restraint, uh, a spiritual influence, a spiritual protector in our workplace. Because life as a Christian isn't just restricted to the church. God also has you at your job. We talked a lot about work. It's not always easy to do this. If a man's in a position to do so, he can provide some measure of spiritual moral protection. This will look different for different jobs. Being the world means he can't totally avoid spiritual pollution, but he's careful to guard his heart, his eyes, not rejoice in unrighteousness. And if he has leadership in his job, you know, there are some, there's some boundaries he can't cross, and he's not sinning by not crossing them, but he needs to and can pray about providing, how can I be a spiritual protection? at my job. That's something we should think about and pray to God for. Okay? All right, second, men as physical protectors. Also an outflow of cultivate, cultivate, subdue, 
keep. And of course, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, this, a lot of these observations, though there might not be explicit commands, again, they're coming from all of those vir verses. You will not, as you look throughout history, we talked about this in many of our uh, coming-of-age masculine rites, looking across time and tradition and culture, you, you won't find many nations, if any, who sent their women and children to fight their wars, protect the village from a flood, uh, carry the majority of the dirty work, you know, hunt, provide, get food. You, you, can, you can search across the world in time, and you're not going to find cultures who said, well, you, you go do it to the women and the children. It's the guys who did it. Common sense, natural light, masculinity, physical protection of the family. Men take the lead in attempting physical protection of the family. Husbands, love your wives. It's a part of that. Love your wives. That doesn't mean just being patient with her when she's struggling or try to lead her in spiritual conversation. Um, but it says, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if he gave himself up for her, he, was, he physically did that. Christ physically laid down his life. Uh, to provide benefit to her. This means that we do this also. That if, uh, if an intruder busts through the door, um, the man doesn't stand back and say, honey, you, you go downstairs. I'm too tired to get up. I, I got to get up early for work. He's down there. He might be dead on the floor, but at least he's dead on the floor and not comfy, comfy in bed. Uh, physical protection in society, masculinity means standing up for truth and righteousness. In society, not just in the church, but in the village, how essential it is for men. This is part of being salt and light. No, we're not going to stop saying what we're saying. Proverbs 24, look at some of these verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 24 and 25. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. You want a good blessing? Rebuke the wicked, according to that verse. Proverbs 28.4, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. Proverbs 31.8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Matthew 14.3, for when Herod, this is an example, look at John the Baptist. Herod had... John arrested, this is John the Baptist, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. That's a guy, a believer, standing up in the public sphere and rebuking the governor. Publicly denouncing the governor's immorality. And that's, that's not in there to show a bad example, like the book of Judges. It's in there for the opposite. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even, instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So men are to stand against lawlessness in the village. Hate evil, you who love Yahweh. You know, if you, if you, you want to love God more, I know I do, then hate evil. That's part of what loving God means. 
Woe, Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So as men, we are not to stand by idle while evil reigns. That's, that's forsaking masculinity. Well, I just hope things get better. No, you do something about it. Be salt and light, be godly, pray where you have a platform, say something. Correct other men in your sphere. Don't laugh at the, at the office and just go along with, with the leftist garbage. Find a gentle, loving way to say, no, actually, that's it's not, it's not how it works. There's a verse that talks about it, verse 25, 26. Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. That's a good one. Tattoo that on your forearm or something. That's a good verse. Like a trampled spring in a... What's a polluted well like? Talk to me about a polluted well, especially in ancient times when they didn't... Yeah. A, a, A well that would supply nourishment to the many. It's a pure... Provision for the village, and it's been polluted. Someone has, someone has poured arsenic in it or sewage. That's what it's like when, it's a, when a righteous man gives way before the wicked. What does it mean to give way before the wicked? Yeah, to just, oh, I don't want to, I'm just going to love my enemy here. No, that's, that's not what it looks like. And may God give us grace in that. It's tricky. So we jump into action when needed. Obviously, here, men are to be ready to protect the village from physical evil, physical protection in the local church. If an attacker jumps on people or women or others or the church or busts through the door, you know, a shooter, whatever it might be, some crazy guy, you know, wielding a knife or a machete, uh, every man jumps into action to do what they can to make the situation safer. Uh, he either helps neutralize the harm or covers and protects others or helps others safely exit or whatever it might be. Same with the store, same with the restaurant, same in the village, in the neighborhood. This means, along the lines here, something to consider, that this means men, men are to be observant. Part of being a protector implies you are observant. Spiritual, that supplies for spiritual. I'm paying attention. What's being said by people here? I got my radar up. Hmm, people are propagating something in, in GC or in, in, uh, amongst informal hangouts. That, that's not right doctrine. I'm observant. I got radar up always. When a man enters the church, for example, the man is observant, speaking of physical protection and, and spiritual. He has one eye. When a man comes to church, he has one eye on those he's welcoming, new visitors he's greeting, not yet believers he knows who are there he's reaching out to, others he's fellowshipping with. He has one eye on them, and he has one eye on looking around, scanning for wolves, scanning for people who are sketchy, or new guys who are just going up to women and talking to them. We had that happen a couple weeks ago. We have that happen 
often do you notice that when that happens? A new guy or two new guys, in one particular instance, come in and are just talking to the women. Why is that? That's interesting. I don't like that. And you shouldn't either. You know? And so he has one eye on that, and he one eye on potential wolves looking out. And there might not be any that morning, and that's okay. But one eye on those. He's welcoming, greeting, loving. And it's essential when someone comes in that you're not sure about, even if you are sure, even if it's a visitor, we want, we want new people, especially new men, to know, I, I, I see you. Not in an arrogant way, not in a lording over way, but why do we want new people? And a wolf can look like a nice dressed guy carrying a MacArthur study Bible, who's really kind. Why do we want new people to know that we see them in this context? Exactly. Yeah, in some of these, in some of these shooters, with that that transgender, went and shot up that Christian school, and and we we understand perfectly well why that transgender did that, right? It was a, it was a, utterly it was targeting Christ and God's people. What did she say? What 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 was revealed that she did not do? Where where she did not go before that, and why? Yeah. Yep. So, so when wolves come in and someone wants to come shoot, shoot people up or, or come and steal people away, either a spiritual or a physical threat, the more shepherds they see, right, paroling, the more of a restraint that becomes. And if you care about the other people in the flock and care about God and, and are embracing masculinity, we have one eye on those we're, we're welcoming, greeting it. Others, one eye on who do I need. And if I see someone I'm not sure about, even if they're new, I'm there. And it was a blessing. Some of you guys saw that a few weeks ago when two guys came in. Some of you guys didn't even notice it. Um, some of you guys saw that and you went right up to them. And would to God that they would repent and come and embrace Jesus Christ and become godly men. But if that's not going to happen, and sometimes it doesn't because not everyone's elect, and would to God that they would be gone. Right, Alex Montoya tells the story. Uh, one of my seminary professors in East LA, mentors who he had a wolf come in one time, and he could just tell the guy was acting fishy, acting funny. He was like handing out a card or something weird, and he just went up to him in the lobby, shook his hand, and smiled in private. He said, "Get out of here! Don't don't you ever come back here." Oh, that's so unloving. That's a no. That's this. It's love. It's this. Right. Physical protection at work, obviously, that's a no-brainer. And number three, God is our ultimate protector. In all this, we trust God. This isn't because we're anything. This isn't because we're so great. Uh, this isn't some you know, self-worshipping thing. It's because Psalm, verse, Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, he's the he's a man's ultimate refuge. The word refuge occurs 41 times in the NASB, in, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, actually. The word refuge has the idea of go to a place where one will find safety, rest, or comfort. Applying the place of refuge is a place to be trusted to keep one safe. Psalm 7.1, O Yahweh, my God, in you I've taken refuge. 
Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. That's David saying that. And David was a, I mean, David was a tough guy. And yet his, his strength, his comfort, his identity as a man and a protector is grounded in the Lord. This is for God, for the glory of God. Okay? Any other thoughts on men as protectors? A lot more that could be said. A lot of this is basic common sense. All right. Once you grab the notes for today, we'll spend the next 20 minutes, the rest of our time, just on the introduction. It's been requested to do a study. So we have today and next week left. So we'll, we'll, this is what we're going to finish on. If, if you have any requests or things that you wanted to look at that we didn't get to, I apologize. Maybe we'll begin next year um, looking, at, looking at that. So men, masculinity, and the mind. God has given us a brain, right? I had a, uh, every other year I have to have an MRI uh, head to toe and it always, I'm always grateful that when I get the MRI on my head, there's still a brain in there because I wonder sometimes. Uh, masculinity and the mind. And I would encourage us men, let's finish strong. Let's try to be here next week if we can. Just two more weeks. Um, maybe you've heard the clever atheist say, right, with a spring in his step, all right, you claim that God is omnipotent. He can do all things, nothing will be impossible with God. Several verses that talk about that. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right? Aha. Uh -huh. um, we know how to answer this. This isn't anything new to you guys. This isn't a conundrum for you. You know exactly how to answer it. Um, but as an introduction to our study on masculinity and logic, logical fallacies, uh, it's a, perhaps it's a fitting place to begin. If we say yes, what if you say yes to that question? Yeah, if you say yes, he can make a rock so big that he can't lift, then there's something he can't do, which would appear to defy his omnipotence. Omnipotence means he's all-powerful. So the atheist thinks he's backed you into a corner. If you say no, he cannot make a rock so big that he can't lift it, well, then there is an, an, another thing that he can't do. Namely, make a certain size rock. And so either way, our answer will, will, will affirm or will, will deny God's omnipotence. And it seems like, well... Golly, we're uh, backed into a uh, theological corner here. The atheist is right. God doesn't exist. Our faith is vain. Uh, there's no such thing as God, and we better just go home and be devil worshipers. Or as G.K. Chesterton said, find something on the street to worship, a cat or a crocodile or whatever it might be. Um, so, however, as you understand, as Alex Atheist is gloating, over himself and uh, patting himself on the back, breaking his arm in the process. Um, and you will 
you will rain on his short-lived parade by letting him know that he has committed a logical fallacy. He's committed a logical fallacy. Uh, in fact, he has attempted to use God's laws of logic to refute the existence of God. And that's a no bueno. That doesn't work. I'm sorry. What law has he violated in this supposed cheeky, clever conundrum? Yeah. Yeah, he has violated the law of non-contradiction. Owen is in the, uh, the logic class that uh, I get to teach for the uh, Cornerstone Co-op kids. So Owen's sharp in that. Good job, Owen. The law of non-contradiction, which says Yeah, you cannot have A and non-A, or something both true and false, but it goes further than that, in the same time and relationship, or in the same context. That's what's key. Uh, when it is said that God is omnipotent and nothing is impossible, um, these statements, like all statements, have a context. Right? They, they, all of life has a context. And the greatest context is God's universe. That's the broadest context. Okay? And you're explaining this to Alex, Alex Atheist because Proverbs 26 says, Answer a fool according to his ways so that he won't be wise in his own eyes. So this is, a, this is binding upon us to love Alex Atheist enough. So there's a realm in which which laws function and omnipotence exists. Impossible means things are impossible that are impossible yet pertain to logic. God's rules of logic and they do not contradict logic. Impossible is impossible in the context are things like God created the universe from nothing. That's impossible, but it's not illogical. Uh, or God caused a, a virgin to have conception. It's impossible, but not a contradiction of logic. Or a guy who was blind to see by just saying words. Or a guy to walk on water. Two guys to walk on water. Impossible, but not violating the law of non-contradiction. Okay? A, raising people from the dead, that's impossible. A contradiction would be he raises a man from the dead who stays dead. That, that's a contradiction. Or he grants conception to a virgin who, is not, who does not conceive. That, that's, that's violating the law of non-contradiction. They're simple examples. So the question then, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And I'm going to talk about why. What, who cares about logic? Who cares about you, you ought to care big time. So asking that question, can a guy make a rock, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's like asking, can God's infinite power exceed his infinite power? Or can a God of infiniteness 
produce something or commit an action to cause himself to be finite. You see the problem? That's violating the law of non-contradiction. Can an infinite God cause himself to be finite? That's a non-question. It violates the law of non-contradiction. We cannot have something be both finite and not finite at the same time and in the same context, same relationship. So it's a Alex Atheist and his cleverness, you've shown him to be a fool. It's, it's a, it violates the law of non-contradiction to say that an infinite being can create and cause finiteness for himself. And C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this, as you would expect him to. In his book, page 18, in his book, The Problem of Pain, I put it in your notes there, he says this, quote, It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things, but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, which is what the atheist said has happened, but because nonsense remains nonsense even, if, even when we talk it about God. That's helpful. Nonsense remains nonsense even when it's about God. So in conclusion, the question violates the law of non-contradiction as such, it's a non-question. Alex Atheist has not actually asked a question. It's a nonsensical question. So it's a non-statement. It's a non-question. It's nothing. It's, it's like asking, uh, if a kayak lost its wheel, how many decibels would it take to eat Saturn? You know, it, it's a non, it, it, there's no difference between that and what Alex Atheist came at you with a spring in his step and a twinkle in his eye. Or how fast can you eat the sound of a 50 decibel smelling cupcake? These are non-statements. It's the same. Those are, those are categorically identical to what Cheeky Alex came at you with. It might provide for some, some you know, some snarky humor for a second or two, but it's a non-statement because it violates the law of non-contradiction. So you, you can tell Alex, the problem is not, A cannot be a, non-A, or a statement cannot be true and false in the same context and time. So you can tell Alex Atheist, you're welcome to go create your own context or universe in which you can violate the law of non-contradiction, however you might figure that out. But in God's universe, it doesn't work that way. And you can try some more personal examples on him, things involving, oh, like his paycheck and stuff uh, that would maybe convince him a little bit more. But in God's universe, this is how it operates. And he might come at you, well, what about God can't lie? Titus 1, Numbers 23, 19, God can't lie. There's something you can't do. Or God can't do evil. God can't sin. Your book says that. There's something God can't do. That's a violation of God's omnipotence. And, of course, you would, that would be an easier one for you. 
It's so simple, isn't it? How, would, how do you answer that? It's the same. It's the same answer, isn't it? How would you answer that using the law of non-contradiction? Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. To lie or to sin would go against what God is, who God is. All words have definitions. And if he doesn't believe you, again, take his paycheck and say, you just gave me an orange. Nothing happened there. You're, I, I'm an, I define it this way. And he'll very quickly demonstrate that he operates every second of his life by the law of non-contradiction. God is infinitely holy for Samuel 2.2, right? So in that context, God cannot sin, he cannot lie, he cannot be evil. And because he's infinite holy, infinitely holy, it's a contradiction to state that he can sin or be evil because that, that would be to say God is infinitely holy and he is not infinitely holy. And you can't, that violates the law of non-contradiction. You can't have A and non-A in the same time, same place, same relationship. You get it. And then you would tell Alex Atheist, um, well, first you would say, why are you, why are you trying to, if, if God doesn't exist, why are you trying to prove that he doesn't exist? That's another violation of the law of non-contradiction. And if he doesn't exist, why do you hate him? It's another violation. And then you would gently and lovingly call on Alex to do the impossible or ask God to do the impossible and be born again by putting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, logic. The importance of reasoning God's way in truth and righteousness. Ecclesiastes 10.10. 10. This is a verse that we like, don't we? Ecclesiastes 10.10. If the axe is dull, him, and he doesn't sharpen the edge, he must, ex he must exert more strength. That's your logic verse. If the axe is dull, and he doesn't sharpen it to edge, he must exert more strength. Wisdom, the verse concludes, has the advantage of giving success. A dull axe, a dull chainsaw, a dull whatever, you got to throw it around, it can hardly cut, it's not a clean cut. Can hurt yourself. Sharpen it. Sharpen it. And you don't want to swing as hard. So it is with our minds and learning logic. Uh, Ecclesiastes 10:10. Logic is your best tool in your toolbox. The mind, the powers of reason, discernment are like a muscle. When we exercise them, they become stronger. And what is logic? It's some definitions, the science. I'm glad that dictionary.com, of, of all places, <laughs> dictionary.com still has the integrity to say it is a science, because it is, that investigates the principles governing correct or reliable inferences. Cambridge deviates, the Cambridge Dictionary, ironically deviates and says it's a particular way of thinking especially one that is reasonable and based on good judgment. All right, we appreciate that part. God and logic. Logic involves simply thinking in a way that is right and true. Logic is a science because 
It, it is, why is logic a science? You tell me. It is kind of a math problem. And backing up categorically, so what that it's kind of mathematical? Exactly. Exactly. Nobody invented logic. Very, very important. Arist Aristotelian logic was not invented by Aristotle. He may have came up with terms, but he didn't invent logic any more than the carpenter invented how much weight a truss or a two-by-four can carry. He, he, he didn't, Aristotle didn't invent logic any more than man invented the four-chambered uh, cardio-electrical pump called your heart or photosynthesis. Aristotle, like the carpenter observing, you know, what can be held up, how things fix together, how things look, or the, 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 the cardiologist or, or the arborist or the statistician or whatever, they merely observed something that is fixed in the context of the universe. And this is how reasoning works. So logic involves observing how God has made things to operate and subjecting yourself to this. This is an amazing thing. Every scientist, every physician, every carpenter, everybody, every nurse, every electrician, I mean, every mason, et cetera, et cetera, every chemist is submitted to God every day in general revelation. It works this way. No, it does not work that way to make a current go. These chemicals interact and produce this result in your patient. You have to, you have to put a truss this way because you're going to have too much of a moment arm and it's going to collapse on the other end or whatever it is. You, every single, the most vile atheist who works is subject and surrender to God. And the science of logic is one of the most peculiar ways and one of the ways in which people loathe, loathe being subject to God. Because there's something about this science that, and it's general revelation to be sure. Okay, we're not talking, you can't use logic to be born again. You need special revelation. One of my secretly, my more closet favorite writers, Gordon Clark, uh, who's with the Lord now probably, talks about this. You, you can't use it. You, you, need, you, need, you can't use logic to understand that there was a guy, Abraham, Christ came from him. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. You need a Bible to give you that. Nevertheless, it's, it's extremely power and necessary. It's, I think it's one of the more powerful manifestations of general revelation. And there's a reason it's been thrown out of the school. Let me just ask as we're ending here real quick. Who, who, was, who was formally, took a formal logic class in school? Anybody? Raise your hand. Seth did. And what school? What kind of a school? Yeah, classical school. Right? How, how old? What grade? Yeah, eighth grade. Any, any time after that? JMU, did you have? Logic, yeah. A classical school, one guy. Nobody else took formal logic. Did anyone go to a private Christian school? Raise your hand if you went to a private Christian school. You didn't have logic there. Ah. Tunic terror. 
I didn't. I mean, I went to I, I went to very mediocre public schools and public university, and they obviously did not have logic. And that's a shame. If there's anything that's, that should be taught in school, the science of all sciences, the learning of all learnedness, it, it should be formal logic. Formal logic. Um, God invented logic. It's a part of the very nature of the true and living God. There are fixed laws and there are lots of fallacies. And it's very important that as we operate in a world where Romans 1 says, depravity has caused them, their foolish heart and mind has become darkened. And we are at a, an unprecedented level of that in our day. The idea of creating, the, the new thing is self-creation, right? That, that's, that's what we're all, we're like at the tidal wave of that, of self-creation, self-identity. I mean, every day you see logical fallacies all around you. And it's very important that we understand what these are and how to handle this so that we can honor God in our thinking and where necessary and love and wisdom answer a fool according to his ways. And we'll pick up on this and conclude and trust next week and looking more specifically at various fallacies. Father in heaven, thank you for our time. Forgive us our sins. We thank you for Christ who has through whom we have no condemnation. Give my brothers great strength, fruitfulness, breakthroughs, great extra wisdom, Father, in their jobs with the, the very difficult things they're facing constantly in their work. Give them extra grace with people around them who are difficult and situations that are difficult until we gather for worship on Sunday. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.